Hello, everyone. Thanks to the good folks over at O'Reilly Media, we will be giving away a free pass to OSCON 2015 in Portland. To enter, just send us an email at show at thecloudcast.net between now and Friday, July 10th, and tell us about your open source journey. Most interesting story wins. And even if you don't win, use the code CLOUD20 and you'll get a 20% discount on your registration. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Cloudcast Media presents, from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina, this is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delp and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Coming back to you very live uh, from DockerCon, another CloudCast from DockerCon here in San Francisco, uh, DockerCon 2015. I've um, got to continue to thank the Docker folks for, uh, for letting us be out here and talk to a bunch of very cool people. Um, we're going to dig a little bit into a new company um, that has been, people have been talking about it for a while, but you guys are really kind of hitting the market. Um, so uh, Josh Ellingthorpe, uh, software architect for Appsera, is with us. How are you, man? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing well. I'm doing pretty good. So um, a lot of folks know the Appsera name because the founder of your company, Derek, uh, uh, founded, well, did a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> a lot of folks know him as the guy who wrote a lot of the original Cloud Foundry, but was at, uh, you know, was at Google, you know, sort of a luminary. Um, and he went off after a while and said, you know what, I learned a lot from, from being in this space, I'm going to go do it right. And I'm going to go do it right, I'm going to go do it right for the industry, I'm going to go do it right for the enterprise. Um, tell us about your background, and then tell us about where AppSera is today. So, um, my story to AppSera is a little bit different than most. Yeah. Uh, most of the people that I know at AppSera, they were definitely drawn in by Derek and his, uh, his very high status in the software engineering ecosystem and the work he did with Cloud Foundry, etc. My intro was actually for uh, our chief architect, Ken Robertson, who I used to work with at a company called Involver. So I've worked a lot of startups my whole life. Um, I worked at Motorola, I've worked at Oracle, and a number of other big companies as well. And I realized the big company ecosystem wasn't really good for me. I need to wear a lot of hats. I like to have a lot of responsibility. I like it when things are a little bit more crazy. And when I was leaving Oracle, I contacted Ken, and I was like, hey, Ken, what are you doing? You're one of the best developers I've ever met. And he introduced me to Derek, and he was employee number one at AppSera. He was the number one bug filer for Cloud Foundry around the architecture of the old system. And Derek thought it was a good fit for them to work on the new, you know, better designed system together. And I just wanted to work with Ken. So I came in, I met Derek, and then I started getting a lot of his history and background. And he's just been amazing. And basically, his vision for the company has really fueled us this far. We've been working at this for about three years now because we had a huge burden ahead of us in the beginning. We there wasn't other people in the space. Docker wasn't there yet. There was no good schedulers yet. A lot of the security work that we're doing today was designed when there was really nothing else on the market that could suit that need. And it took us a long time to work through those harder issues. I think momentum's really swung in the container ecosystem now where it's a little bit easier because you have other pioneers to look at. You have other people that have started solving these problems in the last couple years. So now people aren't the first one, and they actually have other players to look at, like Mesosphere with a good scheduler. And there's other security products in the Docker ecosystem now. 
a lot of that just didn't exist when we were building our product. Right, right. I, you and I spent some time uh, kind of playing with your demo uh, a little earlier around lunchtime when we were when we were kind of getting introduced. Um, you guys do a lot of things that if you if you just looked at sort of the, the buzzword landscape, uh, hybrid cloud, uh, platform as a service, continuous integration, enterprise ready containers. You know, we just sort of walked through that, that, that sort of list of buzzwords, and it was like, okay, how do you do hybrid cloud? And it was like, okay, here's what we do. And it, what was interesting, that what, what came out of you and I talking was you, you, you made this comment. You said, you know, we think about things very differently, sort of maybe not linearly like everybody else. Walk us through the, walk us through the platform, because it does a lot of very, very cool things that meet the buzzwords, but do them differently than other people do them. I, I would have to completely agree with that statement. It, we definitely... Um to clarify what I mean by hybrid, I look at hybrid as a line item. It's a line item because of a good design. You have to design your applications to understand the primitives of what make an application tick. So what are the bits uh, that need to be on the file system? What ports is it going to open up? What start command is it going to have? What package dependencies does it have? And if you have a good manifest as to the structure of a generic application, well, it makes it inherently more portable because you understand how to compose that application. Today, a lot of people deploy their topologies on top of VMs, and they basically boot a VM with an OS, and then they set a set of mutations on top of that VM. So they run something like Chef or Puppet or Ansible, all great products. But I think that the process is backwards. So if I'm putting configuration on the image afterwards and I'm hard-coding that configuration, how is that going to ever be portable? How am I ever going to move that VM to another cloud provider where the credentials for all of those settings are going to be different? So we looked at kind of these patterns and how things were done, and we were like, well, let's do it slightly differently. So in order to stage an application, we have a staging tier, which is the entry point for everything that goes into our system. So the first time that you bootstrap the system, you're probably going to want to load a bunch of packages, like Nginx or Apache or Ruby or standard tools that you usually would have something like Chef install for you or you would install into Packer images or some other tool. Well, you build those dependencies off of the build scripts, and we actually store those, and we have metadata about those packages as to what it provides and what it depends on. So my Ruby package may depend on some OS, and it understands those relationships, and it has a complete you know, graph of how those relationships work. So when I stage all my packages, and then I go to stage my first application... It goes ahead and it opens up and it tries to figure out what type of application type it is, much like Heroku auto-detects your framework. Let's just take a Rails application as an example. If in a Rails application, it's going to go, it's going to see some gem file. It's going to look at the dependencies for that gem file. It's going to start uh, figure out that it needs Ruby, request Ruby from the system. But instead of saying that I need a specific version of Ruby, we can use bare words like Ruby that get qualified by our policy grammar. So in policy, it can say, in this environment, Ruby to me is 2.1.5. And when I ask for Ruby, that's just what's going to get delivered to my application. It's going to build that dependency graph and import that application into the system. And when you start it for the first time, it knows how to create that. It says, oh, man, I need a new Ubuntu layer. I need a Ruby layer. I need your application code. I may need some Python code to run some of the node-specific hooks in some of the Rails applications. And it understands that tree. And then our package management tier can disseminate that to different, uh, different environments and different network locations. So when I'm moving something from AWS to GCE in this hybrid world, 
I don't move anything. I recreate it. I have the packages. I know right. exactly what it took for me to create the job, yep. which means that I can make something that works in two seconds rather than copying something and then having to fix it and then having all of the error cases around having to fix that. Yes, it's more about mere images exactly. of the environments than it is actually copying. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> Absolutely. So Makes then sense. I understand those dependencies, and then we start by providing a firewall around all of these workloads. So by default, your application can't talk externally to anything other than the port that you've assigned for the HTTP router to communicate on or the TCP router to communicate on. So if it tries to do some other independent action, it'll just get blocked. Yeah. You can give it network routes and network egress rules that say, yes, I can talk to these IPs or these subnets, and you can attach those, much in the same way that you can attach services. So when I say that I want to attach a database to my application, it's going to open up one egress route specifically to that one database, and it isn't able to talk to anything else, which means it can't accidentally talk to your production database or accidentally talk to a database it's not supposed to communicate with and we can manage all those dependencies very very specifically right so that, that's where you sort of get that you know you, you just walk through a use case that was sort of hybrid cloud because you said look I can I can treat any cloud kind of independently I don't have to care and then you sort of blended in what is a past use case which is I want this thing to run but I want it to figure out for me how to tie together different services I want it to sort of apply policy not not do it yourself. So it, it becomes this, this combination thing. Talk about, you and I were talking about a use case, and so a lot of times when we talk to uh, enterprise customers, large, and they'll go, yeah, that, that story they told at whatever conference it was sounds great, but it, it seems like it would only work with uh, a set of developers in one location or not a whole lot of different groups trying to beat up on the system at the same time. Talk about, the, uh, about the, the policy things that we were talking about at lunchtime where you sort of said, like, nobody ever really touches the database. Nobody can go and, and mess stuff up because of, uh, you know, which is perfect for if I have contractors, if I have employees yeah. that come and go, I have different teams. You know, so talk about how you guys deal with all that stuff. That's, that's a great question. So I'm going to first answer the, uh, the initial question, which is around credential management. So credential management is something that is very difficult in the world today, especially with contractors, especially the professional contractors that you're bringing in to work on your database right. or work on production application problems. So you bring them in, and you're giving them the keys to your kingdom. You're letting them know all the raw credentials to your database. And who knows what they're going to do with those credentials or who they could give them to or what sticky note they're going to stick it on on their laptop. So we provide ephemeral credentials for our data stores. So when you link to a database like Postgres, we actually put an intelligent binary aware proxy in the middle, and we give it completely fake credentials. And that one network route to that service can get, use those ephemeral credentials. And they don't exist on the database. We rewrite those frames so that it can log in with the real database. But the side effect is that your application developer doesn't ever have real credentials to the database. And we can set the entropy levels for the usernames and passwords to guarantee that the random strings we generate are of a certain high, uh, security quality. And we can do that for MySQL, Postgres, Redis connections. We can even do that for HTTP APIs and rewrite the credentials for those. 
Now, in addition to that, we try to facilitate teams not having to work together all the time. It's not to say that people shouldn't have to work together. It's that certain teams just by definition are going to be distinct teams in an organization. You may have a testing team. You may have an engineering team that doesn't work on the testing infrastructure. So you might want them to iterate on different pieces as they see fit for their organization. With build packs, as I've seen it today, you know, build packs are a single-step stager. And even if you have a multi-build pack, you have to maintain that multi-build pack somewhere. Still a single code base. With our platform, when you're staging something, you can have a code-level stager and then a test-level stager, and they can have different policy applied to them for who can edit the stager. So your testing team can independently update the testing components without your engineering team having to be involved. The engineering team can update their code generation components without the testing team being involved. So we decouple those relationships so that they can work independently if they need to. Yeah, it's, it's really what I'm thinking through here is granular control at a scale that haven't really seen in this space in quite a while because it, it seems like most people in this space or most other organizations in this space they're still working on red light green light mm-hmm. like can you go or not go more more or less actually can certain people go and other people not and the granularity actually becomes one of the keys absolutely uh, going forward especially in the enterprise well, where, that's- where you you won't have one small team that does everything or you know like you were saying earlier like you like to wear a bunch of hats right Mm -hmm. large organizations you're not going to have that that is completely true and that red light green light analogy is really good so what we like to think is in our system it should be safe for you to try any action try it policy allows it then you should be good to go right and the green light's there if policy doesn't, it's not going to let you do it anyway. <laughs> and then you can go and contact your security yeah. person and say, hey, man, I thought I should be able to have access to do this thing. Right. And if you do, he flips the switch, and you can just do it now. And you don't have to jump through all the red tape every time you need to get a machine provisioned or any of that because the infrastructure is already there, baked, ready for you to run jobs. Right. We already can uh, aggregate a lot more jobs on a single host because we're of our containerized infrastructure. So our resource utilization is much better. Right. So we're obviously we're here at DockerCon. Um, one of the things everybody loves about Docker is developers start something on their desktop. Hopefully it runs the same in production or in test or whatever. How do you guys deal with the, the, the person who goes can I just throw a Docker file at your system and have it figure out what to do? So the answer is yes, they can. And the way that we do that is by providing developer sandboxes, which is basically just a namespace that gives you open permissions to anything in that namespace, which means, yeah, you can't connect to the databases outside of that namespace, but you want to develop services there, you want to deploy your own Docker workloads there, you want to pull something from a public Docker repository, you can And we have resource utilization limits for that namespace. And they can go and treat it like a giant playground and have as much fun as they want. But then when they go and they hit a production namespace, they are just not allowed to do that. So they can play around with the tools and any packages that aren't in the system that they need. They can get them set up in their environment. They can send that to their security team. And if their security team approves those packages, they can approve those for the production environment. And they would be made available. So we provide a workflow that allows someone to get from dev to staging to production in a way that makes sense, where you have the audit trail, you know what dependencies were brought in, and you know that it's going to work. Yep, yep. Uh, and, that makes, and, and that's, you know, Aaron, I think we've talked to a lot of people. It's, we're, we're somewhere between sort of this very structured paths, although it's, like you said, it's maybe not as granular from a policy perspective, and lots of do-it-yourselves. 
and it, and it feels like just from talking to you, you guys are sort of past both of those. It's like you get the flexibility of some of the do-it-yourself stuff. It's got multi-cloud built in, so I don't have to say, well, I'll run this instance here and this. You just sort of treat them all as resources. But, but you've got sort of an enterprise sort of viewpoint or at least a more complex business perspective on, on how to deal with all these things. So, uh, I mean, that's really the sole focus that we've tried to deal with is, you know, iterating on use cases that we've seen from our experience as an engineering team at large-scale enterprises. I've seen what the bureaucracy is at the jobs that I've held at the largest, orga- like, large IT organizations. And I realize where the failings are and what it cost me a lot of time in areas that shouldn't have cost me a lot of time. And a lot of that is in machine provisioning. Because if you need to get new machines for development because you can't sandbox your workloads well enough, you can't isolate them from other jobs, then, yeah, you need special hardware for that. And you can't reuse hardware you have sitting there with extra re- Resources. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of my time waiting for that stuff to get deployed. And how do we uh, alleviate some of those actions? How do I make it so that I can provision databases and do those things and lock them down programmatically so that I'm not worried about, well, oh, that configuration file's slightly off. You might connect somewhere that you're not supposed to. Because it's just flat out not possible for them to do that anymore. It's like, yeah, you messed up your config. It just doesn't work. Right. All right. It, it really uh, shields the developer from the harm they can do while enabling people to move fast. I like that. Very cool. So, um, you know, one of, the, one of the buzzwords around, around PaaS and some of these things is, oh, it's all going to be open source, open source dealing with talk, talk about what you guys have done around open source, because obviously the, the culture of your company, you guys have built things, you contribute, like you said, you contributed a ton to Cloud Foundry, but what do you guys do around open source as well so people have a sense of, like, this isn't just going to be some completely proprietary piece of software. They kind of know some of what's going on. So they, can, they can be involved if they want to. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of developers um, want open source tools. I'm one of them. I've written many open source products. I've written QoS systems that were open source. I have Google OAuth plugins for Ruby that are open source. And I support several open source projects. At AppSera, we have Kerma OS and Kerma, which are the first AppC container runtimes outside of CoreOS. We've worked closely with the CoreOS team. All of that code is open source. Our back-end messaging plane, NATS, is a high-performance messaging plane that can do millions of messages a second, designed by Derek. That is open source, as well as all the client and server implementations for it in other languages. We have GSS API, which is um, Kerberos bindings and authentication, and we have open sourced that for Golang. Now, it's true that a lot of our pieces are proprietary, but what we found is that there's a trade-off between speed of development and being able to guide your product direction and having a large open source ecosystem that you're listening to. I don't want to put out an open source project and then every PR I'm saying, no, that's not the design that we want. No, that's not the direction we're going with the product. (laughs) Sometimes you need to have your core engineer team actually focus on building that first version of the product. Now, we've been in talks about whether or not uh, open sourcing more of our stack is a good call. But some of the things are coupled. You know, a lot of people have asked us to open source our policy system. But the policy system, without baking it into the components is a call-out style policy system, which is not the design that we feel is a good design for policy. So picking and choosing the components that we open source is key. Now, our staging layer is completely open. Uh, We have an open source API that's written in Ruby. 
Uh, we have an HTTP API that people can code against. And you can write whatever stagers you want. And we want to provide a huge ecosystem for the open source community to develop those stagers. Our service gateways are also open source and allow for untrusted code to be inserted to manage services so that you can integrate new SaaS services and provisioning services without having to, you know, wait for us to do it. And we have very well-documented APIs around that. Our API server, um, all the APIs that we have documented there are in use by our web console and our command line client, and we use the exact same API that we provide to our customers. So we try to provide the integration points where they make sense, open source key components that are easy to decouple from our infrastructure, and try to provide unique value to the open source community through those projects. And currently, the rest of the product is closed source. Yeah. And uh, we feel that that's okay for right now. Yeah. Now, whether or not it will always be, that's a question. We constantly uh, bat around whether or not it's a good idea for us to open source the rest. Yeah. And I, well, and I think the reality is we're, we're in a world right now where everybody's trying to figure out kind of that, the, the right thing for them between open source and maintaining community and, and design. And, um, you know, in some cases it's design. In some cases it's I'm, I'm a commercial company, right? My customers... Uh, you know, they, they want they want to pay you because they want to know you're going to be around. They want to. So I don't think there's a right answer to that or a wrong answer to that. I think everybody's mm -hmm. got to figure out what works for their business, what their customers want, and what's. Um, speaking of customers, what's the best way for people to engage with you guys? What's a typical, you know, starting point? How can they get your software? All those sort of things. That's a great question. So we have trial images available on our website. It's a single image that runs all of our components. It runs about. Ooh, about 90 to 95 percent of the features. There's a couple of production features that are not included on that image, uh, mainly because it's a single image, and I can't mount NFS stuff on a single image. And there's a couple of features that just wouldn't work on a single image installation. But it auto scales based on the instance size that you install it on. So if you install it on an AMI, uh, you launch our AMI on like a 16 gig instance. You actually have a pretty cool little playground that does all the stager audit detection stuff, includes full documentation, and gives you a really good uh, view of our product and lets you play around with it. If you're happy with what you see there, which we really think you will be, then you can contact us and we can set up kind of a POC cluster for you. So for a small cost, we'll set up a, a, a proof of concept cluster for an organization. We'll get it all instrumented. We'll set it up on the hybrid environments that they want. So if they want it on Amazon and GCE, so be it. If they have an OpenStack installation they want it on, we'll help facilitate setting that up. And then we advise people slowly migrate services. No one wants to forklift all of their infrastructure to a brand new way of doing business. That doesn't make sense for a lot of orgs. So how do you do that? Well, in this world, there's a lot of microservices that are being developed. Not to say that everything at some of these larger companies is already designed that way, but they've already started down some of those paths. So we, kinda, we advocate that they take those microservices and move them to Continuum and start playing around with just certain services running in Continuum so that they can understand the life cycle like, uh, management of that particular service. So they can see what importing new packages looks like, what dependencies and you know, package resolution looks like, what our policy system can and can't do for their organization, and how to actually you know, do those hooks. Get familiar with the product. And then audit on a case-by-case -case basis additional applications. Now, that being said, we do not just service these 12-factor apps. So, yeah, Heroku's model makes sense. Store everything in a database. And, you know, there's certain rules of the trade when dealing with applications that could be torn down and have ephemeral disks. That makes a lot of sense. But unfortunately, at a lot of these companies, 
just supplying M variables for certain settings is not good enough. They have legacy app, uh, Java applications that have complex XML files and other configurations that can't read those M variables easily. So we provide full templating layers where you can set your delimiters and actually import that into any files that you want and register those so that when your job comes up, it will evaluate those templates and rewrite them on the fly so that these legacy applications have a chance to work. And we can actually templatize that context all the way down the package stack. So if you need to have some custom information in your OS layer that is dependent on the app that you deployed, we can actually do that with our application templates and, and bindings, where a lot of infrastructure won't allow that for it to happen. Very cool. So easy to get started, uh, work with new applications. People can bring some legacy stuff over. Um, pretty, pretty granular, pretty very, flexible. Very, yeah, very, very. Long. And, and I think, you know, like you said, it, it gives... It gives control where it needs to have control, and it gives you the flexibility kind of where you want to, whether it's multi-cloud or multi-polyglot you know, for different languages and all that stuff. So very, very cool stuff. So um, like we said, we love the companies that are, that are sort of new. We love that people are making it easier to, to go trial stuff and stuff like that. So thank you so much for the time today. Where's the best use for people to either follow you online or find out what Epsera's doing? So I'm ZQuestZ online. You can uh, find me on Twitter. And um, if you just search for me, Josh Ellithorpe, you'll find a lot of stuff out there. I like to, to write and uh, <laughs> uh, get some things out there. I'm also ZQuestZ on GitHub. Uh, feel free to check a, take a look at my projects. Uh, it's always good to get uh, more feedback from the dev community. And then um, make sure that we have an event tonight that uh, we, are get, we have a project manager from the Kubernetes team coming and speaking at our offices. Cool. And it's at 140 New Montgomery. And so that will be starting around 5 o'clock today. I will also be giving a 10-minute lightning talk along with Alex Toombs. And we'll be demoing some features that we just implemented with a security company for scanning Docker containers called FlawCheck. Yeah. So um, if people want to check that out, then more the merrier. Very cool. Awesome. Sounds great. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcast.net, or you can reach us on the web at thecloudcast.net, where you can find links to everything related to the show. Uh, once again, thanks to the DockerCon people for having us, and thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks.